Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 39. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on September 18th, 2022 in Austin, Texas. Whether or not you're new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. If you deem us worthy, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter or Facebook if you do that sort of thing. And by all means, send emails to the history of the Americans at gmail.com. Support, spiritual rather than financial, for the writing of this episode comes from the Cigar Vault in Buda, Texas. If you're ever in the area, check it out. So a few announcements for those of you listening along and close to real time. Those of you listening months and years in the future probably won't care. The first is that this podcast cracked 300,000 aggregate downloads and listens just a few days ago. The especially cool part is that new people are listening along from the start, which I find incredibly motivating. For example... In 87 of the last 90 days, somebody out there has listened to episode 22, a Esteban and the Prelude to the Coronado Expedition, just to pick an early episode at random. And on some days, as many as a dozen people have listened to that one. If you guys keep telling new people about the history of the Americans, that will continue for years to come, which is awesome. Second, I continue to be running around a lot between the chase for the legal tender having some fun, and being as reasonably decent a son, husband, and father as I can be. The upshot is that the irregular podcast schedule is going to continue for a while. I'll probably miss at least three weekly episodes between now and Thanksgiving, mostly on account of travel. This week I'll be bouncing around between Boston, Princeton, and Charlottesville. Unfortunately, I don't expect much free time on that trip. In October, I've got a great trip planned to West Texas, followed by a few days in New York. That should make for an interesting contrast. And I don't think I'll lug my microphone and books along for either of those trips. And then in early November, I'm going on a boys' trip to Cuba, where I probably won't even have internet access. Regarding that last, I do expect to do a sidebar at some point, which I hope will be interesting, if not weird. Finally, Sean from Chelmsford, Massachusetts, went to a great deal of trouble to find the Popham Colony archaeological site and sent along a couple pictures. I'll put those up in a blog post simultaneously with this episode, or so you can go to the website, thehistoryofamericans.com, and take a look. If any of you visit other places of interest that have come up on this podcast, I'd love to get pictures from you, too. This episode's a bit of a cleanup operation. We're going to look at Tisquantum's legacy and how I think about it. Your results may vary. Plus some other interesting anecdotes from the first three years at Plymouth that I didn't put into prior episodes just to keep the story moving along. For this episode, I'm going to assume you have listened to the two most recent episodes on the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims confront the enemies within, and the Pilgrims play for keeps. So if you've not done or haven't heard them in a while, you might scroll back a bit and listen to those before jumping into this one. The Squanto of the American childhood was the friendly Indian who saved the pilgrims from certain starvation by teaching them how to grow and capture food in an utterly alien world and by facilitating peace with the tribes nearby. 
In our schools growing up, at least for those of us of a certain age, Squanto, never tisquantum in the telling, was an unreconstructed hero. And yet we have known since the publication of William Bradford's Of Plymouth Plantation in 1856 that he, quote, played his own game and almost plunged the pilgrims into a war they probably would have lost. It should be said that Squanto must have been an extraordinarily talented man. He was captured by the nefarious Thomas Hunt in 1615, along with 26 other Indian men in the region, and carried to Spain, where he was to be sold into slavery. Some monks intervened and took him into a monastery. Given his established facility with languages, he must have learned at least some Spanish while living with them. But none of the pilgrim narratives say so. We do know that word got to England that the Spanish had an Anglophone North American from the area, John Smith, that named New England. So he probably already knew some English from traders and fishermen who had been coming to the region, just as the Abenaki Sachem Samoset, the first English-speaking Indian the pilgrims met, had also done. He managed to get to an English ship and then to England, where he lived for a time in the household of John Slaney, one of the leaders of England's Newfoundland project. Then he went to Newfoundland in the hope that he could facilitate trading with the tribes there and then back to England. He finally hitched a ride to New England with Thomas Dermer in 1619, where he learned that he was the last survivor of his home village of Patuxet. Squanto was the only one of Hunt's captives who left any footprint in the historical record. As long-standing and attentive listeners will remember, Dermer and Squanto ended up on Martha's Vineyard, neither the first nor the last migrants to land there. The sachem there, Epinau, had himself spent time in England. In the spirit of Don Luis Opakankana, he had his warriors attack Dermer's small group, and most of them died. Dermer was wounded and managed to escape to Virginia, but he too soon died from his wounds. We do not know what happened to Squanto after Epinau's attack. It's reasonable to wonder whether Epinau fully trusted Squanto, who had come into Epinau's turf as a translator and guide for the English, whom Epinau manifestly hated. Yet somehow, Squanto ended up back on the mainland with Massasoit no later than the spring of 1621. He was smart enough either to persuade Epinau of his loyalty and to release him, or perhaps he escaped. Either explanation would be further evidence of his persuasive skills and all-around savvy. We can also surmise that Massasoit, who, like Epinau, was nobody's fool, probably didn't entirely trust him either. The evidence for this is that when Massasoit finally decided to approach the pilgrims, he sent Samoset, the visiting Abenaki sachem, rather than Squanto, even though the latter spoke English much better. We do not know why Massasoit made that decision, but it's easy to imagine that Squanto struck him as a bit too slick to be trusted with such an important mission. Both Epinau and Massasoit might well have suspected that Squanto had gone native from their perspective during his years abroad. Finally, recall that Massasoit eventually sent his Pnees Habamak, a trusted elite warrior and a member of the chief's inner circle, to live with the pilgrims along with Squanto. Had he been entirely confident in Squanto's loyalty, why would he have done that? 
As you all heard in the prerequisite episodes, Squanto became fast friends with William Bradford, who came to rely on him as his window on the Indian world all around him. Habamak bonded with Miles Standish. During the second part of 1621 and early 1622, Squanto traveled around to villages in the area, supposedly negotiating trade on behalf of the pilgrims. As Bradford and Standish learned in the spring of 1622, while on those trips, he positioned himself as the only person who could protect the nearby tribes from the pilgrims. He was, in effect, proposing that he, rather than Massasoit, was the critical Indian player. Eventually, Squanto tried to trick the pilgrims into attacking Massasoit by claiming that he had betrayed his peace with the pilgrims and fallen into alliance with the Massachusetts to the north. Habermack accused Squanto of treason, and Bradford and Standish eventually figured out that Squanto had, in fact, betrayed both them and Massasoit. Still, Bradford refused to extradite or execute Squanto, and that led to a rift with Massasoit just as the Massachusetts were, in fact, building an alliance to drive the English out of Wessagusset and Plymouth. Squanto holed up behind Plymouth's palisade for most of 1622 and would die under mysterious circumstances on his first trip out of the town in late 1622. Only Winslow's miraculous healing of Massasoit in March 1623 would fix the relationship with Massasoit. The question is, why would Squanto play such a dangerous game? Was it that he was ambitious and saw an opportunity to replace Massasoit and become Grand Sachem? Regarding Tisquantum's main conspiracy to supplant Massasoit, Edward Winslow's account suggests that a deep need for personal honor drove Squanto to treason. Quoting with a few clarifying edits, he raised this false alarm, hoping whilst things were hot in the heat of blood to provoke us to march into his country against Massasoit, whereby Squanto hoped to kindle such a flame as would not easily be quenched, and hoping that if that block were once removed, there would be no other between him and honor, which he loved as his life and preferred before his peace. Back to me. It is, of course, possible that Squanto grew up from the cradle to be unusually ambitious and concerned with honor above all. My own take, probably because I married a psychotherapist, is that the Squanto of 1621 was a very different man than he'd been in 1615. Consider all that had happened to him. He'd been captured, hauled across the Atlantic as an enslaved man, and doomed to a life as a slave in Spain, an utterly alien place, until a miracle intervened. He developed a plan to get home, which he eventually did after four years, only to find that his entire world, virtually everybody he had known, was dead, and by a means that would have been mysterious and supernatural to him. Then he would be treated with great suspicion by those Indians who did remain, and have to use all his wits to make a place for himself in their world. Perhaps we use the word traumatized a bit too much today, but is there any chance that Squanto had not been profoundly traumatized during the six years before he met the pilgrims? 
and how would that have affected him? Highly traumatized people often develop psychological defense mechanisms to allow them to deal with the horrific things they have experienced. Those can lead to behaviors that seem perverse to psychologically healthy people. Perhaps Squanto's tremendous insecurity, which Winslow saw as a love of honor, was a response to the horrendous experiences he had had. If that is a reasonable speculation, and obviously it is a speculation, then perhaps it also explains why William Bradford, an unusually kind and wise leader in his age or any other, had a soft spot for Squanto that clearly went beyond his utility as a translator. He would not have known at any scientific level what we know today about the debilitating effects of psychological trauma. But Bradford was not blind to the world. He'd suffered his own catastrophic losses as a boy. And of course, the two of them had a great many conversations that did not make it into the historical record. Feelings and personal histories must have been exchanged. Bradford came to know Squanto as a man. Even if Squanto was no hero, he was in his talents, experience, and achievements remarkable. I wish we knew more about him. There are a few other anecdotes from 1622 and 1623 that did not fit well into the narrative of the last couple of episodes, but are interesting enough, to me at least, to pass along. My paternal grandmother, born in 1907, had an expression she would roll out if it appeared when we're playing cards a bit fast and loose with the rules. They'll shoot you out west for that, she would say. Probably true enough in her time, or not too long before. Anyway, the Indians of New England took their gaming equally seriously. Winslow describes a fight among Indians over gambling that almost broke out into a war. I'll read it with the usual clarifying revisions to make it easier to understand for listeners. It happened while Bradford and Habamack were calling on the sachem in nearby Canicum. Quote, It happened that two of their men fell out as they were in a game, for they use gaming as much as anywhere and will play away all, even the skin from their backs, yea, and for their wives' skins also, and myself have seen. And growing to great heat, that one killed the other, such a one as they could not well miss, yet another people greater than themselves threatened them with war if they would not put the murderer to death. The party offending was in hull, neither would their sachem do one way or other till their return, resting upon his counselors for advice and furtherance in so weighty a matter. After this, there was silence for a short time. At length, men gave their judgment what they thought best. Amongst others, he asked Habamack what he thought. Habamack answered, he was but a stranger to them, but thought it was Better that one should die than many, since he had deserved it, and the rest were innocent, whereupon the sachem passed the sentence of death. Back to me. I love this passage for two reasons. First, I learned that in earliest America, there was Indian gambling. This caused me to wonder whether gambling is universal to all human societies. That took me to the gambling entry in the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Anthropology, which declares rather emphatically that, quote, gambling is not a universal human activity. 
But then it goes on to say that gambling is always confined to a subset of any given culture, an increasingly large one, I would say, at least in the United States. And quote, there are some areas of the world, most notably the Pacific Islands and Inuit communities, where gambling was once unknown. For my money, as it were, if the most notable places that never experienced gambling were Pacific Islands and the Inuit, gambling is as close to a universal human activity as something can get without actually being universal. Anyway, an editor's note in the version of Winslow's Good News from New England that I read says that, quote, several colonists described natives' games or gambling. Roger Williams described the Narragansett's games, including one he compared to an English card game played with rushes rather than cards, and another in which stones were used like dice. Seriously? Stone dice? Like in the Flintstones? Well, yes, Dice are, according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the oldest gaming implements known to man. The other thing I like about this passage is the moral reasoning it reveals. Habermack puzzles the problem through from both a utilitarian and fundamental rights perspective, more or less as anybody else would do in a society with no police or judiciary to protect accused criminals from the mob. Another story from 1623 that interests me involves a game-changing economic decision of the Pilgrims. Like Jamestown in its first dozen or so years, Plymouth operated as a collective farm. They had a community debt to the adventurers to pay off, so they worked as a community to do it. Unlike Jamestown, the Pilgrims, who knew a thing or two about duty to a higher purpose— were able to feed themselves even as a collective farm. By the summer of 1623, however, it was becoming clear that the adventurers who had financed them were in disarray and very unlikely to pursue the pilgrims for their collective debt. Indeed, by that time, Thomas Weston himself had arrived on the coast of New England disguised as a blacksmith. The Indians had robbed him of everything but the clothes on his back, and he had arrived in Plymouth a ruined man. The pilgrims gave him a hundred beaver pelts to trade, a stake to get him back on his feet, and Weston was then able to get a boat and sail for Virginia. So with Weston out of the picture, the pilgrims began to realize that they were both in the clear, at least financially, and that no further supplies would be coming from England. Now let's go to a bit of a long passage from William Bradford, who describes an economic lesson that has been, sadly, forgotten over and over again. We began to think how we might raise as much corn as we could and obtain a better crop than we had done, that we might not still thus languish in misery. At length, after much debate of things, the governor, with the advice of the chiefest amongst them, gave way that they should plant corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard trust to themselves, and so assigned every family a parcel of land according to the proportion of their number for that end, only for present use, made no division for inheritance, and ranged all boys and youth under the same family. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been 
by any means the governor or any other one could use, and saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability. Whom to have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years and that amongst godly and sober men may well reveal the vanity of that conceit of Plato's and other ancients applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of property and bringing in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For this community, so far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment. It would have been to their benefit and comfort. The young men that were most able and fit for labor and service did repine, which means to feel discontent, that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. The strong had no more in division of victuals and clothes than those who were weak and not able to do a quarter the other could. This was thought injustice. The aged and graver men to be ranked and equalized in labors and victuals, clothes, etc., with a meaner and younger sort, thought it some indignity and disrespect unto them. And for men's wives to be commanded to do service for other men, as dressing their meat, washing their clothes, etc., they deemed it a kind of slavery, neither could many husbands well tolerate it. Upon the point all being to have alike and all to do alike, they thought themselves in the like condition, and one as good as another. And so, if it did not cut off those relations that God hath set amongst men, yet it did at least much diminish and take off the mutual respects that should be preserved amongst them. And would have been worse if they'd been men of another condition. Let none object, this is men's corruption. I answer, seeing all men have this corruption in them, God and his wisdom saw another course fitter for them. Back to me. In other words, collective farming, whatever its philosophical appeal, does not result in nearly as much production as individual farming. Is this because men are corrupt and will not work for the common good? Bradford says maybe so, but since this particular corruption is universal, then it is as God intended. Fortunately, in Bradford's formulation, God in his wisdom provided for the means for prosperity, the motivation in owning the product of one's work, notwithstanding human frailty. The pilgrims, being pious to a degree few Americans are today, saw God in all their good fortune. And there were indeed some miraculous moments. The healing of Massasoit was clearly one of those. Another came in the summer of 1623. Now back to Bradford, in which he describes some extreme weather. Quote, By a great drought, which continued from the third week in May till about the middle of July, without any rain, and with great heat for the most part, insomuch as the corn began to wither away, though it was set with fish, the moisture whereof helped it much. Yet at length it began to languish sore, and some of the drier grounds were parched like withered hay, part whereof was 
never recovered. Upon which they set apart a solemn day of humiliation to seek the Lord by humble and fervent prayer in this great distress. And he was pleased to give them a gracious and speedy answer, both to their own and the Indians' admiration that lived amongst them. For all the morning and the greatest part of the day, it was clear weather and very hot and not a cloud or any sign of rain to be seen. Yet toward the evening, it began to overcast. And shortly after, to rain with such sweet and gentle showers as gave them cause of rejoicing and blessing God. It came without either wind or thunder or any violence, and by degrees in that abundance, as that the earth was thoroughly wet and soaked therewith, which did so apparently revive and quicken the decayed corn and other fruits, as was wonderful to see, and made the Indians astonished to behold. And afterwards the Lord sent them with such seasonable showers, with interchange of fair warm weather, as, through his blessing, caused a fruitful and liberal harvest to their no small comfort and rejoicing. For which mercy, in time convenient, they also set apart a day of thanksgiving. Back to me. I love that story. I'm not particularly religious myself, but it does make me wonder whether we might all benefit from an occasional day of humiliation. The drought itself was, in fact, extraordinary for New England. In 1623, Bradford wrote that it did not rain from mid-May to mid-July. In 1965, the driest year for the region in all the 20th century, nearly three inches fell at Plymouth during those same weeks. This is a good place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. As I said up front, I've got a lot going on in the next few weeks, and I'm not even entirely sure what the next few episodes are going to be about. We do need to get back to Virginia, and we also need to dig into New Netherland. The Dutch are already in the area, and in 1624, at this point just around the corner, they would found New Amsterdam. Plus, I have a couple of sidebars in mind. Anyway, please keep the cards and letters coming and tell all your worthiest friends that they need to give up all those presentist history podcasts and start listening to this one. Until next time. <laughs>